and uh, and we are going to be live. There we are. We are live. Um, so Debbie, just give me a moment here, and we'll we'll bring this up and introduce everybody to Debbie Greenberg. Okay. Okay. Fabulous. Right after the break here. It's 9 a.m. in Los Angeles. It's, <laughs> I don't know why, but it is. It's 9 a.m. in Los Angeles. It's 5 p.m. in Liverpool. You heard me right, folks. It's 5 p.m. in Liverpool. And in New York City, well, it's just about high noon. Hello, everybody. Mad Dog Scipio joining me today on this episode, special episode, in fact, of What's the Buzz podcast, America's podcast is Debbie Greenberg. Debbie is a really interesting lady. She owned, ready for this one? She owned the Cavern Club. Yes, that Cavern Club. But alas, no, she didn't own it while the Beatles were there. But very shortly thereafter, Debbie Greenberg is a very fa fascinating, fascinating woman who chronicled her life story in this amazing book, Cavern Club, The Inside Story. And so, Debbie, welcome to the show. I am the Mad Dog. We all know that. And you just know me as Angelo. <laughs> Thank you, Angelo. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. Hope you are too. Wonderful. It's, it's a fabulous day to finally, and I have to tell people, Debbie and I were supposed to meet in, uh, in I believe, in New York about two weeks ago. And it, because of one circumstance and another, we, we couldn't get together. Well, Debbie's back in Liverpool now. And finally, through the magic of technology, we're able to sit down and have a conversation about this amazing place that she was fortunate enough to have a hand in called The Cavern. Um, and you wrote this book out of, first of all, people asked you to write a book. I know that. Everyone wanted you to write a book. The other thing is you chronicled not only your life in this book, but you were able to capsulize and summarize the feeling and the, the energy of that time. We're talking about the early to mid-60s from about 1965, 66, to about, I'm going to say about 1971, around there, right? About right? Yes, well, I started to go to the cavern in 1959, so the book covers from then till 1970. Yeah, yeah, well, you, you, there were, yes, there was life before the Beatles, folks, believe it or not. <laughs> My understanding, Debbie, is that the, the cavern began 
as kind of a blues jazz club. Yes. Is that right? Is, what, was, yeah. what was the, uh, the, the scene like at the time? It was good. Um, it was popular. Uh, the guy that opened the cabin, Alan Sittner, in 1957, he was a mm. jazz enthusiast. Right. He'd been over to Paris and he'd seen um, a cellar jazz club over there on the left bank called Le Caveau. And when he got back to Liverpool, he wanted to replicate it. And he found the ideal premises in, um, in Matthew Street, uh, cellars with arches uh, underneath a towering block of warehouses, which was perfect for him. And, and that's how he opened the cavern. Yeah, he brought he it's, brought big jazz group uh, bands as they were then. Um, he had the Mississippi Jazz Band played to open the club, but he had uh, jazz bands like Akabilk, Chris Barber, um, Kenny Ball. He had all the big names coming to the cavern. I was going to ask you about that. How did um, uh, Southern American music translate uh, in in Liverpool at the time? We're talking about the latter part of the 1950s, early 1960s, uh, were people at the time very receptive to you know, Southern jazz and blues? Yes, they were. You know, um, they've, it filtered through from the U.S. to us in Liverpool, um, predominantly due to the sailors that went, that, that went to America and they brought the records back. And anything that was was music was wonderful, you know. It was it was ten years after the war, almost maybe a little bit longer, um, yeah. and we were hungry for 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 good music. What kind of reaction? This is I always love to ask people this. What kind of reaction did you witness when people like Chuck Berry and Little Richard, Elvis Presley, popped on the music scene back then? Because they were, I mean. We thought they were wild here. I can imagine what people overseas thought. Oh, they were brilliant. They were dynamite. We, we couldn't get enough of them. They, really? they were new and they were, as you say, they were wild and they were loud. And, and we wanted more. My understanding, too, is that Jerry Lee Lewis, who we just passed away, Jerry Lee Lewis was very popular in England at the time, particularly. Um, in Liverpool, there were a group of guys. I'm going to talk to you about this because I some I have a friend in my house. I have several friends in in the UK, but he said, "Ask Debbie to explain to you what a teddy boy is." <laughs> so okay, so what what the hell is a teddy boy? <laughs> a teddy boy um, were teddy boys were a group of boys. Who, who, who wanted to look hard, and they were hard. They used to wear knuckle dusters and, oh, and, God. and you know, they'd have razor knives and everything, and, and they'd have the slick hairstyle combed back, short back and sides with the DA at the back, yeah. and they'd have a long uh, coat on, three-quarter length coat with wow. drain trousers and, and uh, neon-colored socks. And, you know, they were threatening that's crazy. <laughs> that was kind of the, it's funny. They called them teddy boys. Uh, we didn't have a name for them here. We just called them hoodlums. Um, <laughs> yes. 
Guys with the leather jacket, the slick back hair. Everybody wanted to look like Elvis, you know? That's right. Um, it was remarkable. You've written this book that encapsulated a time in history that was, well, first of all, it'll never be repeated. Uh, and that time in history was special for many reasons. There are challenges in writing a book, um, whether it's, a, you know, a, a smaller book like this or even a larger novel. You always run into challenges and difficulties in writing a book. What were the memorable challenges uh, or difficulties for you in, uh, in penning this incredible, fascinating book? Well, you know, Angelo, I didn't have many challenges because it was a labor of love for me. So to be honest, uh, the only challenge that I had were, were the, the difficult parts where the cabin was demolished. And that was very traumatic for us. So that was possibly the, the only time it felt like a challenge. That's interesting. You're, people, um, you just kind of segued right into what we're going to do later. Um, people are, are watching this and they're listening. We're actually going to see photos tonight of the demolished cavern club. It's a sad thing, but from the ashes, like the Phoenix, it rose to become the cavern once again. Yes. And so we're going to take a pic. I'm sure there's, there's difficulties there for people who remember the glory days, but your father was one of those people who kind of breathed new life into this place. Let me tell everybody what's going on here. Back around 1965 or so, 66, uh, your father, Alfred Gagan, came to you and said, Deborah, my daughter, my dear, my darling, how would you like to buy the cavern? <laughs> uh, at which point you said, are you nuts? <laughs> but your dad said to you, Listen, um, I have a chance to buy the Cavern Club. What do you think? You know? Exactly. What do I think? You know, like offering the child the keys to the sweet shop. But yeah, uh, for but real. Having, but having said that, I had a, a good business head, and I said, "Look, Dad, I'm, I've seen the Cavern Peak, and I know it can happen again, and I think you should take it." And on my say so, he bought the Cavern together with um, a friend of his who had approached him in the beginning about buying the cavern, a guy called Joe Davey. Um, Joe owned a cafe in Duke Street where all the uh, groups used to go for a meal after their gigs. It was open till 4 a.m. in the morning. And uh, Joe said to my dad, you know, I've got the chance of buying the cavern, Alf, but I can't afford it on my own. Would you come in with me? Um, and also Joe was illiterate. He, he only signed his checks with, with a cross. So he needed dad for the administration and that business acumen side as well. And, and that's when he came to me, my dad, and said, I've got the chance of buying the cabin. What do you think? And so, you know. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, as you, people can see up on the screen right now, in 1966, the previous owner of the cavern, I guess for one reason or another, bad management, bad money management, they declared bankruptcy. Yes. And your father, as you say in the book, kind of out of the blue, just said, uh, what do you think would be a good idea to buy the cavern? Take it over. 
And, you know, it's like, as you said, it's like, you know, giving a, a child the keys to the candy store. <laughs> Absolutely. It, and who's going to refuse that? Let's be honest about it. Christ. You know, it's like the godfather going up to Sonny Corleone and, you know, and making an offer you can't refuse. Of course you're going to take it. Of course. It's crazy. I want to talk to you, though, about, because we talked about, um, Liverpool at the time being it was kind of a seaport town. Yes. And I'm sure it's a very industrious city nowadays. It but is. One of the things that happened back at that time were um the youth of that area, young people in that area were really protesting, vehemently protesting to the point where I read that about a hundred or so kids locked themselves in the cavern. They they locked themselves in. They did. Can you tell me what happened there? Yes, it was the 28th of February, 1966. And Ray McFall, the, the guy who owned it at the time, he called down to the cavern that night and he said, the, the cavern is closing tomorrow and the bailiffs are coming in in the morning. And as soon as he left, the, the kids went crackers. I wasn't there that night. Yeah. Um, but they barricaded the uh, the entrance to the cavern with all the chairs from the center aisle. And But, of course, the following day, the, the, the police came with the bailiffs and they had to succumb and, and uh, they entered the building. But yeah. they, they went on a march through Liverpool um, and they were singing uh, to the Yardbirds song, Still I'm Sad. And they, they, they took a march through Liverpool and then they did a sit-in in Matthew Street and they hung a, a big wreath over the door of the cavern because we they all felt, we, everybody thought that was the demise of the cavern then, you know. Um, yeah. And then a few weeks later, my, my dad came to me and said, I've got the chance of buying the cavern. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's you, you should, is that a trick question, Pop? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Trick question. So again, uh, Alfred Gagan is um, Debbie's father. He is the guy who I believe he's the unsung hero here. Yes. And I want to tell people why. Uh, your father was a very humble, quiet man most of the time. Yes. But very good at business. Yes. He knew how to make money. That's right. Uh, which, which, which actually benefited, you know, everyone. We all benefited from your father's keen sense of businessmanship um one of the things at the time is that as a young woman it probably early 20s i'm guessing at this point maybe 21 22 you are i, I was 20 okay so 20 and but now you're growing up and you're seeing what's around you you're taking mental notes and you're you're surmising the situation how much of that memory uh, played into writing the book and were you worried that you might remember things wrong? Because sometimes that the more time goes by, we remember things differently sometimes than they actually were. Um, what kind of, how do I want to say this? Um, did your memory play tricks on you like it does to a lot of people? No. <laughs> No, well, didn't. You. You're very lucky. <laughs> you're very fortunate. <laughs> so, uh, but at the time, you know, you're taking all these mental notes. Um, 
did did you know at the time that this would make a great book? This that your life story would would turn out to be like this fairy tale story? No, because I I only decided to write the book in 2014 um, because oh, rumors wow. were rumors were flying around Liverpool that the blame for the demolition of the cavern, the original cavern, was being laid at my father's feet, and he'd passed on. And he, he wasn't here to defend himself. And I knew that wasn't true. And I was determined yeah. to put the record straight. And that's why I, I wrote the book. Well, I can tell you, having read uh, quite a bit of the in-depth history, uh, you can blame a lot of people for the demise and demolition of the cavern. But uh, Al Gagan ain't one of them. Correct. I could tell you that um, for sure. There are there's a long list of names. If we want, you can go down that rabbit hole if you want, but it's a very deep rabbit hole to climb into. Um, talk to me about this uh, fascinating, handsome young man you met at the time, named um, Nigel Greenberg. Talk well, to me about Nigel and his involvement in uh, either the cavern or Beatles lore, because he's well, got a fascinating history. Nigel and I didn't meet until 1981. Really? We met on a blind date organized wow. by mutual friends. And it was only then that I found out that he knew both of my parents. Um, and he also, he'd also owned the uh, recording studio at the cavern between 1964 and 66. That's where I was getting at. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> as Nigel moved out in, in, in February 66, we moved in in April 66. So we were like ships that passed in the night. It just and that's, Isn't that funny how, how <laughs> serendipity, how life circumstances drew you back again? Yes. It's interesting you say that, Deb, because I just had a gentleman on the show who met Paul McCartney here in the States in Tennessee. Right. Uh, you're familiar with the song Junior's Farm? Yes. Okay. This gentleman I had, his name is Dan Ely. He gave Paul McCartney a Rickenbacker bass guitar that Paul generously gave back. But Denny Lane wanted to keep it. Now, I knew Denny from back in the day. But this gentleman knows Denny very well. And it's funny that this guitar had the similar history that you and Nigel had. It went from one place to another around the world. And they finally came back to my friend Dan. 41 years later. Wow. <laughs> Remarkable. Remarkable. Absolutely. Let's talk about the birth of the Beatles at the Cavern. A lot of people don't know this, but yes, there was life before the Beatles. But I will dare to say that when John, Paul, George, and Pete, yes, there was no Ringo yet. Right. John, Paul, George, and Pete, Pete Best, uh, when they took the stage at the Cavern Club, I think all bets were off after that. No one in Liverpool or around the world had quite heard anything like that. It was a very unique sound, very distinctive. It was a little bit of Southern American doo-wop with um, the edginess of that Liverpool teddy boy kind of feel. 
to it. <laughs> See that? I had to use that teddy boy. I'm going to get that teddy boy in there, too. <laughs> We're also going to talk about something later on. I mean, you're going to explain this to me. Skiffle. What the hell's a skiffle? <laughs> We're going to talk about skiffle in a minute. But I want to talk about the Beatles. Um, you were there. From the very beginning, you watched the Beatles. I did. Before Ringo. Yes. The, the debut performance of the Beatles at the Cavern was on the 9th of February, 1961. But they'd played at um, a venue outside Liverpool on the 27th of December, 1960. And by all accounts, they'd given an incendiary performance and they were the talk of the town and we couldn't wait to see them at the Cavern. But they'd been billed as the Beatles direct from Hamburg, Germany. So when we... Uh, when we were waiting for them to arrive on, on the 9th of February, we were expecting to see a German band or group, as we called them then. I've heard that. Everybody thought they were German because That's they right. played in Hamburg for so long. <laughs> but of course, when they arrived at the cabin, they were Scousers. They were Liverpudlians, which was wonderful. You know, we were thrilled with that. But they, mm -hmm. they just bounced onto the stage. They, they were exciting. They were intoxicating. Their energy was palpable. They were loud. They were raw. And, and I, instantly we were blown away with them. Well, I was. I went home to my dad that night and said, there's a group on the cavern called the Beatles. And you mark my words, they're going to be famous one day. You, you just knew it. that they, yeah. As you say, they were unique. Absolutely. Let's talk about that, Debbie, because that's a fascinating subject. We, you know, the finished product was the Beatles, but prior to the Beatles, um, a young man named John Lennon formed a group called the Quarrymen. Yes. And then there was another group. He, it was the same group, and he gave it a different name called the Silver Beatles. Yes. Did you have a chance to see the Quarrymen evolve into the Beatles? No, because the Quarrymen um, got together in 1957. Um, that's when John met Paul at St. Peter's Church in Walton. But Paul didn't join the group until the October uh, of 57. And they did play um, at the Cavern um, during 1957 and 1958. But that was right. just before I went to, to the cabin in 1959. Right. So 1959 kind of ushered in this new era of music, uh, particularly around Liverpool. Um, for those of, of the people that are watching and listening, if you don't know what the Mersey beat sound is, it is a uniquely Liverpoolian. Am I saying that right? Or is it Liverpoolian? Liverpudlian. There you go. What she said. <laughs> it's a uniquely Liverpudlian. Put it. What? Yeah. It's a. It's a unique sound to Liverpool. There you go. <laughs> what this? Well, that'll twist your tongue. <laughs> so it's a unique sound. People like, of course, the Beatles. Uh, Tony Sheridan's in the Beatles. People, yes. they forget. Tony Sheridan was a big part of the Beatles. Oh, yeah. Uh, I have some of the early recordings, too. Um, yeah, Tony was a big part. And then, of course, you had Peter and Gordon, Chad, you know, um, Chad and Jeremy. You had Jerry and the Pacemakers. Um, 
Oh, Lord. Let's see who else we had. Uh, oh, Billy J. Kramer. Uh, the Searcher, Scylla Black. I love Scylla. She was amazing. Uh, the Foremost, the Swinging Blue Jeans. Yeah. Uh, Tony Crane and the Mersey Beats, the Shadows. Yes. I'm going to throw some names at you. There you go. Tony <laughs> Crane and the Mersey Beats. I'll bet you didn't think I knew that one. Hmm? <laughs> I'm impressing. See, I'm just impressing Debbie like crazy today. You don't even know. <laughs> So uh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about some of these these early Beatle-influenced groups. And the Beatles, it, even as they developed their own style, were influencing other bands, which yeah. we never seen before. Talk about that a little bit, Debbie. Well, they did. They influenced everybody. Everybody wanted to be like the Beatles, but, of course, they they, they couldn't get that that they were completely unique um but bands like you you've just mentioned jerry and the pacemakers and another band at the cavern called the big three um they're into this heavy rock style you know the raw loud music it was fantastic we couldn't get enough of it and yeah. and people like the foremost and the searchers and billy jay and the remo four and the swinging blue jeans we were so fortunate to have all these fabulous groups around us. Let me throw a couple of other names that people might be very, very surprised to find out actually played the Cavern Club. How about if I tell people the Rolling Stones? They did, but not when, we, not when we had it. The Rolling Stones played on the 5th of uh, November 1963 at the Cavern. Isn't that remarkable that the, that the Rolling Stones followed the Beatles into the cavern? Yes. And how about Donovan played yes. the cavern club? He did. Yeah. Gilbert O'Sullivan That's also right. played the cavern club way back when. There's a, by the way, we're going to see a photo tonight of you and Nigel with Gilbert uh, from the book. Um, yeah, the swinging blue jeans, as I understand it. Uh, first of all, I love the name. I love the name, the Swinging Blue Jeans. As I understand it, they were like a, a house favorite there. They, they were one were. of the, the, the house favorites at the Cavern Club. Yes, absolutely. Um, they used to you think about their style. If you were to describe the Swinging Blue Jeans, how would you describe their musical style? Well, it was rock, um, but it wasn't. It wasn't as heavy and raw as the Beatles. Um, but it, but it certainly got you going. You know, you you couldn't help but dance to them. Um, they were a fabulous group, and they used to hold guest nights at the cavern, the Swinging Blue Jeans. Oh wow, interesting. And the Beatles were on one of their guest nights. So here's the question: It's funny that we know that the Beatles were unique. They were very different, but nobody can really define that niche everybody's got their own you know opinion of what it is that's special about them you saw them from day one so i'm going to ask you because you are i'm i will consider debbie greenberg the resident expert <laughs> so here's how it's going to work what was it about the beatles in your opinion which and by the way your opinion means everything here what is it about the beatles in your opinion that uniquely cemented them as 
the great, and even today, in 2023, they are still regarded the greatest rock and roll band ever. They, they were powerful. They, they were magnetic. They, they got you under their spell almost as soon as they played. And, and it, it's, it's so difficult to, to put across how we felt. You know, we, we felt as if they'd, they'd taken hold of us and they'd drawn us into their group. That's, that's how physical yeah. it felt. Um, and we, it, was, it was like a feel-good drug that, that we wanted more and more of every time they played. They were it's, so it's special. remarkable. My information tells me, and I, I had to double-check this number, but my information tells me that you saw the Beatles in excess of 300 times. That's crazy. <laughs> well, I saw them 292 times when they played the Cavern Club. Um, oh, my God. That Just at the Cavern? Just at the Cavern. But I saw them at the... Our ballroom as well, and they played there 27 times. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, they're right, over 300 times. <laughs> Holy crap. And every time it must have been like a unique experience. It was. It yeah, was. And I'm fascinated by that, Debbie. I'm fascinated by this group. And you only have so many songs you can play. <laughs> but to see them... 300 plus times and never get tired that's like you don't you don't see that anymore no if i listen to a a, a performer for five minutes now and i don't like it i'm bored i'll never watch it listen to them again <laughs> you know if you haven't captured my attention in the first five minutes you're done that's why i'm still a big fan of the beatles elvis presley Little Richard, Chuck Berry. I love that stuff from that, that time period, you know? Well, the Beatles appeared with Little Richard. I saw them together at the Tower Ballroom in New Brighton, and that was on the 12th of October, 62. Um, that was a fantastic show, but a completely different atmosphere to the cavern. Um, it was a big amphitheater, and the, 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 yeah. the atmosphere was cold in comparison to the cavern. Interesting. Um, how did um, that's really curious. How did little Richard translate to that that kind of audience? Was he the energetic little Richard you would have expected? Was oh, he? yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, it was it was massive, the tower ballroom. It was a big amphitheater. There was no no seats. You everybody stood. Oh, oh, you had to stand you up. Had to stand, and there was oh, a wow. gallery. There was a balcony that went right the way round the the circular hall, um, and you could watch from there as well. Oh, he he was amazing. He, he was just as we know him. Yeah, that's remarkable. The other remarkable thing about the Beatles, a couple of things that were remarkable. Um, they were one of the very few bands at the time. That all dressed alike. They all had the same suits. And they all had a very distinctive, unique haircut. And people around the world were getting their hair cut like this. <laughs> straight across, like the Beatles. <laughs> nice. We all called it here in the States, we called it the Mo Cut. You know who I'm talking about, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, Mo from the Three Stooges. <laughs> Talk to me about that. The first time you saw that unique appearance, um, did you think to yourself, what the hell are my boys doing here? Well, John had been over to Paris with Paul. He was supposed to be going to Spain for his birthday. And um, they, they stopped off in Paris, bumped into a, a friend they knew from Hamburg. And uh, he, he was, uh, cut, he'd had his hair cut similar to Stu in, in, in uh, Germany. And um, John and Paul wanted their hair cut the same way, but they, he had it cut sort of a, a side fringe going across like this. Um, and of course, because John and Paul couldn't manage this side thing going across, they kept doing this to straighten it. And that's where they got the head shake from. So when they came back to the cavern, there was only John and Paul that had those two haircuts. And then about a week or so later, George joined in and he had his cut the same. But Pete wouldn't wouldn't conform. He wanted to stay with the short back and sides at the back on the on the drums. So and that that's how yeah. the hairstyle hair was born. I actually want to talk about Pete Best and uh, Stuart Sutcliffe. Um, uh, sadly, uh, we just had the anniversary of uh, a sad anniversary of uh, Stuart Sutcliffe's passing. Yes. At the very young age of just 21 years of age, um, he passed in, I believe he passed in Hamburg, right? Yes. And um, and I believe he also, he passed from a brain hemorrhage. He did. Um, was it known at the time, Debbie, that uh, that Stuart was um, uh, a sick young man, that he, has, that he had uh, physical problems? No, we didn't know about it um, because... Uh, when the, the when the Beatles came to the cavern for their debut, Stu wasn't with them. He'd stayed behind in Hamburg to be with Astrid. That was in 1961, the February. Mm -hmm. um, but he did join the Beatles on the 21st of February and stayed with them in Liverpool until March. The, uh, the last performance at the lunchtime cavern was uh, the 24th of March. And a yeah. couple of days later, they returned to Hamburg. Um, and then, of course... Uh, the following year, um, when they went to Hamburg in the um, in the May, uh, they'd gone uh, just before May. They'd gone in the April, and of course Astrid met them, you know, to tell them the, the news. But because they'd signed a seven-week contract with the Star Club, they couldn't come back to Liverpool for, for Stu's funeral, so yeah. they, they had to stay where they were. But we we had no knowledge um, of what was happening in Liverpool. Yeah. It's uh, it's interesting. The other character we're talking about here, um, the late Stu Sutcliffe. We're also talking about Pete Best, the uh, the first or one of the first drummers. That believe it or not, people don't know, the Beatles actually had five drummers. Five drummers for the Beatles. Yes, we all remember Ringo. He's of course the one who lasted. Yes, he's the one who made the most money. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> And he's still spending that money. <laughs> but Pete Best, it is said that Pete Best, as you said, uh, would not conform his haircut. That was one thing. The other reason given, and I want your opinion on this, uh, it is said that Pete was asked to leave the band because he was getting more fan mail than Paul and John. 
Well, these were the rumors that were flying around Liverpool. There were a few of them. What That was one of them. And another one was that Paul was jealous because Pete was better looking and he was getting, as you say, more fan mail. Um, and somebody, some of the other rumors were that um, they didn't think his, his uh, drumming was good enough. But, you know, he'd been with the, the group two years by this time. It was August yeah. the 16th. Uh, 2000 and uh, sorry 1962 when yeah. uh, Pete was summoned to Brian Epstein's office um, and he said to him the boys want you out and Ringo's joining them on Saturday you know that was a bolt out of the blue for Pete he was absolutely yeah. devastated but we we never got to the bottom of why um, yeah. Pete was removed of course I would love the opportunity I, I'll tell you what I would love the opportunity to have Pete Best on the show and, and talk to him directly about that as well. I know that you know Pete. Yes. Um, and you know him well. Um, why don't you, uh, well, maybe after, when we get off the air, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some information. Um, but I would love to have Pete Best on the show to talk to him about that and, and have you back with him as well. Okay. <laughs> that would be a, fa a, a fantastic show. You mentioned Ringo. Um, before Ringo Starr was Ringo Starr of the Beatles, star drummer of the Beatles, <laughs> he was with Rory Storm and the Hurricanes. That's uh, right. not, a, not too shabby, by the way, because Rory Storm was quite the character himself. And it's Rory so Storm and the Hurricanes were, yes, and you knew him as well, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. There's not many people Debbie didn't know, folks, let me tell you. She got around, she knew the music scene in the day. <laughs> she knew who was good and who stunk. <laughs> and Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, they were a hot band. They were. They were a hot band. Rory he, Storm was, uh, as we said, he was quite the character, very flamboyant over the time. He was a showman. Yes, he absolutely was. Why yeah. did it? I want to rephrase that. What was it about? That performer, that um, that time in history, that Rory Storm didn't become a bigger star than he was. Do you he know was I, quite the, the big deal, right, Debbie, in Liverpool? Oh, he was. He was a lovely guy, Rory. Um, I don't know. He should have been a lot bigger than he was. They called him the Elvis Presley of Liverpool. <laughs> Rory <laughs> Storm and the Hurricanes. And his drummer was a young guy named Richard Starkey, who yeah. became known as Ringo Starr. Yeah. How did Ringo um, garner the position of drummer? Uh, who was it that noticed him first as a drummer? Was it the Paul or Brian or, or a John? or uh, How did... I, I'm not real sure, to be honest. And I love Beatles, and I love the Beatles' history. But nobody, it's, I've heard three different versions. I've heard, you know, Paul's version. I've heard um, the official version. And then I've heard Ringo's version. And all three versions don't jive together. They don't coalesce. Okay. So what was the, the again, you're the expert here. <laughs> if you say it, I believe it. <laughs> so how did Ringo join the Beatles? Well, I think because he'd stepped in um, 
in Hamburg to back them or to drum for the Beatles uh, when peace wasn't well and he was back in Liverpool. And uh, so they knew Ringo, obviously they knew him from Rory Storm and the Hurricanes, but they knew how good a drummer he was because he drummed with them in Hamburg. Um, and the story that I have heard is that as it was George that, that was the one that was uh, keen on having Ringo as a drummer. Really? Oh, and I heard that one. I heard that one. Because Ringo gives the story that George is the one who recruited him. Mm -hmm. That's that's what I heard. It was yes. George Harrison. Evidently, George wasn't as quiet as people think he was. Oh, no, he wasn't. No, not and you knew George? Well, not personally, you know. Mm. We knew them very well because the proximity of the stage to, to the first row of seats in the cabin was less than a foot or so away. So oh you could God. and the stage was only a couple of feet high. So you could practically touch them, you know, whoever was on stage, it was such a close proximity. And it was yeah. a very familiar and comfortable and safe place to be. And you could ask for yeah. requests and, and, you know, they'd interact with the audience all the time. It, it was it was like being part of a private party every time yeah. they played. I, I heard that, that it was always a party atmosphere. Yes. And that everyone knew each other. But it was also described to me as like a can of sardines. <laughs> yes. Every, and you're going to see some pictures tonight that will verify that. That's right. Um, the other thing is the Cavern Club gave birth to a revolution. Yes. You're going to see photos of that revolution tonight. The revolution was that Liverpool was now on the map. It yes. was no longer just a shipping community, a seaport community. And and by the way, yes, White Star Line was in Liverpool. That's right. From uh, is it uh, the uh, to Titanic? People don't yes. understand it. Yeah, the Titanic was built in Liverpool, so it's a very industrious community now. It's a very, very savvy business community, making a ton of money off the Beatles merchandise and memorabilia. And clothing and the Beatles Museum, by the way, lest we forget, the Beatles Museum is yes. housed in Liverpool. Yes. And uh, Debbie has a, a hand in that as well. Debbie, let's take a look. Uh, we're going to do show and tell tonight. <laughs> I love showing pictures of people. Let's take a look at this. And we'll tell everybody what we're seeing here. Uh, this, of course, is Debbie Greenberg. That's the book. That book. This book. It's a great book. And um, go out and buy it. It's available everywhere. You can buy this book. It's a fascinating book. It's the inside story. Now, what are we looking at here, Debbie? You're looking at the entrance to the original Cavern Club. It was less than four feet wide, and it had 18 stone steps that went down to the bottom. You, you went down 14 steps. Then there was a little landing at the, uh, facing you, and you turned left down another four steps and then you entered the cavern proper and that's when the heat and the noise would hit you it was like stepping into an oven but but that was the only entrance in and out of the cavern that's what they tell me they and they tell me that those stairs that went down were quite steep almost a perfect like straight down 
Yes, there was a handrail on the left-hand side to, to hold on to. But oh, the yes, you can see it in that photo. Look at I never. It's funny that you say that because I just noticed it. But the groups had to take their equipment past us if we were queuing up, though. You had to pin yourself against the wall to let them through with all their equipment. Oh, they had. That, that was, was the, when that you was say the that's only, the only entrance, you mean yeah. like it's the only entrance? Yes. Oh, I thought you meant was the only public entrance. I thought maybe no. there was the musicians brought their equipment in some. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Remarkable. Uh, we're going to take another look here. These are, of course, the Beatles. Um, this is, uh, I'm, and I, there are, I want to explain to what we're seeing here. We're looking at the Beatles on stage at the original Cavern Club. Now, now yes. if, you, if you look at this, we're looking at a lot of archways, so what we call a proscenium arch. And so these arches are all throughout the cavern, correct? Yes. And they are essentially what's holding the place together. That's okay. right. There are, we're looking at about, it looks like about 10 or 12 girls shoved into that little <laughs> corner. <laughs> um, how loud was that music inside the cavern? It was deafening. Absolutely deafening, but we loved it. You know, we didn't care how loud it was. Right. Bob Woolley, Bob Woolley used to say even the spiders ran for cover when the groups were on stage. The That's remarkable thing, Debbie, is it looks like that those young women, even though they're all crammed together, they don't seem to be bothered at all. No, we, we couldn't get enough of it. Um, you're there. That's Debbie Greenberg um, standing with a very familiar looking man <laughs> who has a lot of success, a lot of money and has written a lot of songs. That's Sir Paul McCartney. That's so uh, how the heck did you meet Paul McCartney? <laughs> well, this photograph was taken by Linda Eastman. Um, oh, Linda took the photo. Linda took the photograph. Oh, wow. I'd been to the hairdressers and my dad had been stocking the top bar, which is the bar you can see behind the photo of Paul and I together. Yes, um, ma'am. And Paul walked in and said, my dad introduced himself, Alf Gagan, the cavern, and Paul said, Paul McCartney, the cavern. And he said, I've got my new girlfriend in the car, Alf, outside, but I'd like to bring her back uh, in about an hour to show her where it all began. Uh, on one condition that you don't bring the press in, he said, because I've got to go over the water to deliver a, a record player to my stepsister, Ruth, and I'd, I'd like to come back in about an hour. And my dad said, okay, you've got it. Now, I came back from the hairdressers, thought I'd missed him, and dad said, don't worry, there's a chance he'll come back. Um, you finish stocking the bar, put champagne on ice, I'm going to go and buy a camera. And he went a few blocks away, bought a Yashica camera, and brought the photographer back with him, didn't tell him what it was for, and the photographer set all the dials and the apertures ready on the camera for the lighting in the cavern. And then, sure enough, Paul came back with Linda, and we, we shut the door to stop the tourists coming in. And we, we chatted. Paul wanted to reminisce about the very early days in the cavern of how it all started and how it felt. Um, and we went dad went to pour champagne and linda said i'll do that i'm a good bartender so she <laughs> thought she poured the champagne 
Um, and we talked some more and dad said, could we have some personal photographs, Paul? And, and he said, sure. Dad went to pick the camera up because the photographer had said, just press the, you don't have to do anything, just press the button. Uh, Linda goes for the camera. I'm a good photographer, I'll do that. So she picked the camera up and I could see my dad's face was a study. I, I could see he was thinking, well, that's torn it because we didn't know, we didn't have a clue who she was or what she did. Yeah, um, she was a photographer. And, <laughs> yes, quite, but we didn't we didn't know. Quite a uh, good one, in fact. <laughs> I know, absolutely. And so Linda took more photographs and we chatted in the in the top bar. And then we went down. When we bought the cabin, we had to adhere to a, a lot of, of uh, demands by Liverpool Corporation. And we because of that uh, entrance that you saw there, we had yeah. to put a brand new entrance into the cabin, which we did at number eight Matthew Street. We got the D for uh, 8, 10 and 12 Matthew Street. So we yeah. put the entrance at number eight. And so you went through number eight and down a big eight foot staircase down into the cabin proper. Um, and then we went yeah. down into the cabin proper. And then Paul went over to the upright piano outside the band room and he started to sing and play Hey Jude. And that was so surreal. It was as if it was taking place in slow motion and, and you know, it, we were just all in the in the in, in the in the uh, moment together with him. Isn't that remarkable? It, it was it's such a magical remarkable day. magical day. Look at this photo. Look how young Nigel was in this photo. I <laughs> know. Wow, you there's Nigel giving Linda a big hug. There's Paul. <laughs> yes. There's Debbie. Um, this looks like. Because I have other photographs that are part of this set. Yes. And it looks like uh, a somebody's wedding. It, it was. It was Mike McCartney's wedding. It was Paul's, oh, Paul's brother. brother. We Nigel and I Nigel and I filmed the wedding for them. Um, Nigel had been down to London on the train and he was coming back and he bumped into Mike McCartney and Mike said, oh, all right, Nigel, I'm glad I've seen you because I'm getting married in a few weeks and you don't know anybody that'll video the wedding for us, do you? And Nigel said, well, I've got a small production company. I'll do it, but I'll have to bring somebody with me. The equipment right. was heavy, you know, in those days. Sure. Um, and so I, well, he said, as long as you can trust them, okay. So, of course, I was key grip. I had the recorder and Nigel had the camera. Um, yeah. And we, we videoed the wedding at St. Barnabas's Church in Penny Lane, where Paul was a choir boy. Um, yeah. and we could only video outside the church when they came out. And then we went back to the reception and we continued to, to film for them right through to the evening. It was magic. I, I noticed um, that uh, both you and Nigel, and I had to... <laughs> I took that photo and I blew it up. I had to read what was on your name tag. And mm -hmm. you, you and Nigel are both wearing name tags. Is that so That's people right. knew that you were with, you were someone's guest there, right? Yes. Well, it, it, it said Liverpool Video Services, which was... Oh, gotcha. Okay. So let's take a look at the next series of photos here. And this one, of course, this is uh, uh, Paul and Linda... Uh, that's Mike. That's uh, Mike McCartney, Paul's brother, yes, and his bride, Rowena. Um, and you are uh, are you off to the side of this photo, or are you the one taking the photo? No, 
I'm not taking the photo. This lady on the left in the blue is Auntie Jane. Um, and this lady on the right is Rowena's mother. Um, oh, I got you. Okay. But it was actually... Um, it was actually a friend of ours um, from the Remo Four. It was Don Andrew that took the photographs. Um, oh, okay. And he, gotcha. he, gave them, he gave them to us. And uh, when I wrote my book, I said, I asked him, you know, would it be all right for me to use the photographs? And he said, absolutely. He said, they're your photographs. I gave them to you. He said, so oh, you can use that, them. Mike said that or Paul? No, no, no. It, that was Don. That Don. Oh, Andrew, I got you. Got you covered. Okay. From the Remo Four, he took the photo. He was. Oh the yeah, the photos. Yes. Yeah. Oh, so he let you have them. Terrific. He let you have them. Yes. Oh, wonderful. That's beautiful. Um, there again. There's a couple more photos here. In this, there's Nigel and Debbie with Gilbert O'Sullivan. That now, that Gilbert, was. A, <laughs> I'm sorry. sorry. That was the fiftieth anniversary of the cavern. Oh, that was the special occasion that marked the 50th anniversary. Okay. Yes. Fabulous. <laughs> and by the way, Gilbert always had that hair. <laughs> he always had that. He was always had this big bush of hair on his head. Yes. Um, great entertainer too. Very, uh, a very good singer. Yes. I always liked the listening to his music. <laughs> um, I well, his hit song was called "Alone Again." Naturally, was that yes. the one? Yes. Yeah, I love that song. You don't hear music like that anymore that you can understand. I know. Uh, here are the liner notes for the Cavern Club, the inside story. This was the book of the month for the book of the month club. And um, it tells the inside story of the Cavern Club by Debbie Greenberg, my special guest. Um, you got a lot of press from this book. How much of it, Debbie, was negative? Did you get any haters? No, I'm I'm pleased to say no, I didn't. You are so fortunate. You really, really are. Now we are looking at a very, very early photograph. And I want people to understand that what we're seeing here is the cavern, which basically looks like a shoebox <laughs> with uh, like thousands of people in it. And there's probably only about a hundred, but it looks like thousands at because they're all crammed together. The Beatles are up on stage, which looks like a very small stage. Yes. Very it small. small. It, it was yeah. almost the size of the one in the replica cavern, but the ceiling height in the original cavern is about two or three feet higher than the one in the replica cavern. Um, but the yeah. capacity the capacity for the cavern, the original cavern, was 600. Was it really? Mm -hmm. That many? Yes, and they'd I'm squeeze a few shocked. more. Yeah. I'm absolutely shocked that it was that many. Um, we're looking at this photo, Debbie. Um, if you're looking straight on, if I'm looking to the left and to the right, we see those arches. Yes. Did they go anywhere or was that just the wall there? No, when you entered the the cavern, yeah. there were three there were three tunnels. The one on the left. I had the cloakroom at the, at the far end where Scylla Black worked. Oh, um, oh Scylla was at the cloakroom? <laughs> she was in the cloakroom. She was the cloakroom. She room worked there. in the cloakroom. Scylla Black with that great voice worked yes. in the cloakroom? 
But the Beatles they hid her in a closet. <laughs> but the Beatles uh, used to bring her up on stage. Paul used to say he used to call her Cyril, and he'd say, "Come on, Cyril, give us a song." And Scylla would get up on stage with the Beatles. They'd back her, um, and she'd sing "Fever" or "Summertime." That was her her type wow. of music. And oh, the foremost, the foremost used to back her as well. But the the tunnels in the caverns consisted of three tunnels. So there was the, the tunnel on the left with the cloakroom at the far end. Yeah. There was the central tunnel. And um, at, the, at the other end of the, the uh, left-hand tunnel was the snack bar that, that right. sold scoop and Coca-Cola and hot dogs and tea and yeah. coffee. And the now, Debbie, she, uh, what we're looking at, right? See those gentlemen, those, those young boys there on the right? Yes. Well, they seem to be in front of a tunnel. Where did that tunnel go to? Well... The, that, the, the, the people that you look, you're looking at on the right, yeah. were, where if you were to go through those arches where they're standing, you'd yeah. be in another tunnel then. You, that was the left-hand tunnel. And then oh, the, gotcha. Okay. And then this central tunnel where the stage is, and then the same thing happened, the same thing was replicated on the left-hand side, parallel, another tunnel, and the band room was at the far end of that one. Yeah. And they'd go wow. through the band room to get on the stage. Uh, what we're looking at now, they tell me that this is the new cavern. Yes. Okay. Um, and I also found out that there was some um concern about trying to replicate the the glory of the original cavern some people were concerned that that they didn't want to have another cavern club there why ultimately why was it built and who was the driving force behind the new cavern well it was quite a number of years um after the original cavern was demolished and plans were put before the council to, to build um, a new cavern club. And it, it was accepted. It, it was, it was um, pushed through uh, the council and, and it was uh, replicated. They managed to save um, a good percentage, probably about 80 or 90% of the, the original bricks uh, from the original cavern, yeah. and and they rebuilt the arches inside. It's a very very good replica. The only thing, as I mentioned, that I can find different in it is the height of uh, uh, the head height on the um, on the stage. Yeah, you're actually going to see that here in just a second. Um, we're going to take a look again. That was the uh, that was the original place. Um, again, some more. Uh, photos from inside here we go this is uh again back to the original yes. i wanted to bring this photo up for a very specific reason i want everyone to notice the back wall of the camera that's a unique design there that, um, that, if that that was a mondrian design oh okay it's interesting because if you look, and when I looked at it at first, you're going to laugh at me when I tell you this, but it almost looked like a map of the United States. Ah, okay. <laughs> it did because it, we, it's just kind of like all the different shapes and it reminds yes, me of a yeah, US I see map. what you mean, yes. Yeah, and so let's take a look at some of the, here we go. 
This is a mob of teenagers inside. Now, these are very small archways. Yes. And they're screaming. Obviously, the Beatles are on stage. I, I, I can only guess the Beatles are on stage because these girls are all screaming. It's either no. that or Elvis, and I don't think Elvis ever played the cat. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't. Um, um, okay, again, this is a photo, Debbie, from outside. The original Cavern Club outside. Yes. Now, the door, they tell me, was on the corner, right? No? No. Oh, no. Was it was on, it was okay. on the flat of the wall. It was it was a completely flat wall, and, and it was just part of the flat wall. So that's what we're seeing there then? Yes. That's the original. Okay. Yes. Okay, because I was I was concerned. I was a little confused because I did see um, where it looked like the, the the entrance was on a, a corner of a building somewhere, and maybe that was the new one. I don't know. We'll take a look yes, in a minute. That, that looks as if it's on a corner. The new one. That that's oh, a, okay. A perfect. A perfect uh... And so this is the original entrance here. Yes. Yeah. When I first looked at that. Now, uh, let me just make sure we're, is this what we're looking at? Is this the original cavern or is this the replica? That looks like the replica. Okay. Um, it appears that if, again, if you're just seeing this for the first time, it looks like a map of the U.S. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because there's all kinds of wonderful colors in it and it looks yes. like a rainbow. Um <laughs> Except for the giant sign in the middle that says the Beatles <laughs> and uh, the Swingham Blue Jeans. Um, it's, it's interesting that everybody's on that wall. Now, I'm going to go back. This is going to be memory lane a little bit here. Some of these photos might make Debbie sad, but I think uh, we'll get some explanation as to what we're looking at here. Okay. Now, this is, they tell me, Debbie, that this was the site of the original cavern club where this empty space is here. Yes. Well, that was the site of the warehouses above the original cavern. Of course that the cavern was in the cellar below. Okay. And that's called Matthew street. That's right. Okay. Everyone I spoke to said you didn't need an address for the cavern. You just, everybody said, just go to Matthew street. You'll find it. Yes. Yeah. So, and it's, um, it's a an interesting photo that we're looking at because you're going to see why it's interesting here in just a minute. Um, that's where the cavern was. This is underneath. That that's it, that's the replica cavern. Oh, this is the replica. Oh, it is. Is it okay? Now it was black and white. Oh, I was. I okay. I'm looking at this thinking this is the original, and I'll tell you what what made me think it was the original i see that rope line in the front i thought that was like a stay away thing no it, it never had a rope or a, the only time we put a barrier across the um the stage in the original cavern was when chuck berry came to play because he insisted on having a barrier because of the close proximity to the audience oh interesting okay so that's the replica we're looking at all right now I get some perspective. Again, this is the first time I'm seeing these photos with you. So I'm not quite sure because of it's black and white. 
Uh, it does have a, a kind of vintage look to it. Okay, now, this is, this is actually, you're looking at what would have been the Cavern Club. This is underneath the, the street. Yes. And you can see where the warehouse that you spoke of would have taken up this property. Yes. And people are looking at these unmistakable arches. Yes. Uh, one of those archways could very well have been the stage. Uh, we don't know. No. All we know is that we're looking at this photo, Debbie, and we can see that on the street above, there are uh, work trucks, large trucks uh, moving. I, I'm assuming they're moving debris back and forth. But the arches that you're looking at would have been on the side of the cavern so that that the the stage arch would have been beyond the crane over to the right at the back oh i see so behind where that crane is yes that would got have been it. the position of the of the stage would have been got it okay so let's take a look here now uh, this is a this is an interesting picture uh again as you said they used a lot of the bricks from the original cavern Yes. You're looking at where they got a lot of them. Um, those little archways that you're looking at there, uh, that's all been filled in. Yes. That's the original cavern club that's been filled in with dirt. Yes. And all you can see now, all remaining of that beautiful piece of history is the top of a proscenium arch. And so let's look at the next series of photos. And that's, I can't, yeah, there it is. The, the cavern entrance right up against the wall there. And that's bad. Um, was this taken, I'm guessing, about mid-60s, maybe 67 outside, or so? Outside the cavern. Um, this would. This was the Ivies who became Badfinger. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. The yes, Ivies played between 68, 68, 69. Okay. And Badfinger Bad played 1970. Uh, yeah, I thought that it looked about mid-60s. And here's Paul. Um, this is a band called Curiosity Shop. Now, let me tell everybody what was happening here, because I have a little, a little background on this. Um, let me just read this to everybody. So, the, um, the band called Curiosity Shop, they were performing at the cavern in the evening, but this happened to be in the afternoon when the band was rehearsing. That's right. Well, Paul, here's this music coming from the cavern club. Now, this was the day that he walked in with Linda, and this was the day that he, he just played Hey Jude on the piano to us, and then he got through the band room and went on the stage. with, with the. They'd been rehearsing the Curiosity Shop. My father managed this group. Okay, um, yeah, what it's telling me here is Paul McCartney makes an unannounced visit to the cavern. Curiosity Shop was rehearsing, and Paul joins in. That's right. He took his place on the drums, and he said he'd always been a frustrated drummer. Um, yeah, and Paul Linda, was uh, Linda always wanting to play drums for some strange reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, Linda took this photograph as well. And so and let's let's talk about this for a second. Paul is, of course, known as 
probably the world's most famous bass player. Yeah. But that easily could have gone to Stuart Sutcliffe because he was the original bass player yes. of the Beatles. What was Paul's position in the band if Stuart was the bassist? Well, I think he was rhythm to begin with. Um, A left, because, left handed guitar. Okay. Because cool. when um, he, he took over, what happened when they came back from Hamburg in the December 1970? Uh, uh, gosh, get my dates right. Um, 1960. On the 27th of uh, December, they played Little and Town Hall. Now, Chaz Newby had to step in for them. He And coincidentally, he was a left-handed uh, bass player as well. And he, oh. shared the he shared the same birthday as Paul McCartney. Um, and wow. he, ste he stepped in for four gigs in the December. Um, and then 1961, he... he uh, He'd, he'd gone, he'd, he'd only done the four gigs, and Paul McCartney stepped in um, until Stu came back on the uh, 21st of February. Um, and that's how Paul came to uh, develop the, um, the bass. Remarkable. This is the crowd gathering. Again, this looks like uh, early to mid-60s. This is the cavern. Now, would would you and your father have owned the, the cavern at this point in time? No. Okay. That was, that was before we bought it. Okay. So this was somewhere between 64 and 66, perhaps? Yes, I would say okay. so. And was it normal for, for young people to gather outside like this? Yes. Okay. And so this is before... Okay, this is the new one, uh, cavern, I, I am assuming. Yes. Okay, and, and I'm looking at what looks like to be uh, the bar. Is well, yes, you're looking at the bar from, from, uh, from the far end, from the, uh, the stage end. Mm -hmm. So if I'm on the stage, I'm looking at the bar straight ahead. Uh, no, not quite, because the bar continues this way, so the, the stage would be in the next aisle here. Oh, I got you. Days. Okay. And again, this is remarkable that they've done an amazing job of replicating the cavern, which begs the question to me, and call me nuts, but if they were going to rebuild it anyway, why did they take it down to begin with? Oh, well, that's the million-dollar question. That's why I wrote the book, because the truth was that um, we'd sold the club in 1970. We were in the process of selling the club um, to a guy called Harry Waterman, who'd brought in a partner called Roy Adams. And uh, negotiations started um, in November 1970. And the contracts were drawn up. And then my dad got a, um, a letter from solicitors in London who were acting on behalf of British Rail. Now, British Rail owned the land that the cavern stood on. And they wanted to uh, build a new metro underground railway link under Liverpool city centre. And they, they wanted the site of the cavern for a proposed ventilation shaft. And they were putting a bill before Parliament in 71 in the January, and if it was passed, it would give them the power to compulsorily purchase the uh, the site of the cavern. And we 
my dad contacted the the solicitor and said you must make the buyers aware of this he also rang harry waterman and told him about it um, and then the negotiations continued and the contracts were signed and exchanged uh, towards the end of November. And then another letter arrived from the solicitors in London saying that if the, um, the owners of the cavern were prepared to pay the sum of £500, British Rail would be prepared to move the proposed site of the shaft further down Matthew Street nearer to Button Street. And my father gave the uh, letter to the solicitor. He rang Harry three times while I was there. Now, Harry was a multimillionaire even in those days. He owned 12 clubs in Liverpool. Mm -hmm. And my dad was uh, really urgent with him. Harry, you've got to pay this money. You mustn't lose the cavern. It's not just another club. It's a music mecca. You know, it belongs to the world. Uh, yeah. I, all right, Alfie, he was very apathetic. And three times my dad rang with more urgency. And he said, it look, look. Um, Harry, it's a shrine to the world. You mustn't lose it. Oh, well, all right, Alfie, he said, I'll let Roy decide. And he put the onus on Roy Adams, who was his partner for uh, yeah. purchasing the cavern. And they had two and a half years to pay that money to, to, um, to British Rail. And yeah. they could have saved the cavern and they didn't. They chose not to do it. And it was a sliding doors moment. Had It was a matter of weeks, that's all. Had we yeah. still have owned the cavern, when, when that second letter arrived, the original cavern would still be there today because we wouldn't have hesitated to pay that yeah. money. Oh, 500 pounds seems like a measly amount of money. Exactly. Well, it was to him because he was a multimillionaire. That's crazy. I that, know. That, so now the, the, this is the new cavern, Debbie. And so where are we? Are we looking at Matthew Street here still? Yes. You're looking, is... you're looking at number eight, Matthew Street. That's where it was. That's where we'd put the entrance in. But because the Matthew Street is on an incline yeah. and because uh, number eight is higher up the street, nearer to the Hard Day's Night Hotel, mm -hmm. um, you have to go much Wait, further. Say that again, the Hard Day's Night Hotel. Hard Day's Night Hotel. I love it. Only in Liverpool can <laughs> they find the Hard Day's That's like in Memphis, Tennessee. It's the only place in the world you're going to find the Heartbreak Hotel That's in right. Memphis. <laughs> the Hard Day's Night Hotel in Liverpool. I love it. On Matthew Street. And so you have to go down about 30 feet down into the into the new cavern. Yeah. Um, when you went down the, those stone steps into the original cavern, it was only about 11 to 12 feet below ground. So there was a big difference because, because of the incline of the street. Yeah. And then the other one, you had to go down 18 steps, almost straight down. Yes. And so it's a, a, a big difference in, in the way you entered the club. But I'll tell you what, for, from what I saw of the original club uh, in photographs, because I was just a baby at the time. I don't even remember. <laughs> <laughs> um, this looks like they did a, very, very respectable job of duplicating it. Oh, absolutely. Amazing. Thank, thank goodness. Thank goodness we've got it. You know, we could have ended up with nothing. So hats yeah. off, you know, and hats off to Bill Heckle and Dave Jones who have it now and have had it for, for decades. Um, they've, they've done a wonderful job for Liverpool and the city. 
Now, uh, Debbie has uh, has Ringo or Paul or or any of the Beatles uh, commented on um what this club means to them? Have they been there? Have you know if Ringo or Paul have been there? Uh, I don't know if this was built when John or George were still with us. Uh, it was built in 1984, um, but Paul has been back and played here at the New Cavern. Oh, he has. He has. Oh, wow. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I love to find that video. Wow, man. <laughs> um, interesting stuff. Let's take a look at this. Here we go. Sir Paul gets back, it says. Sir Paul gets back. This is, um, uh, again, we've seen uh, the, the original photo of this. This is Paul joining in with Curiosity Shop, a band that Debbie managed. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Debbie's father managed. That was, um, that was the original cabin, the, the shop before that one. Yeah. Oh, was it? Okay, so let's take a look there. Let's take a look. This is the original, one, correct? One before. Go one before. One before. I got it right here. Here we go. Let's see. Here we go. That's the original. That's the original Cavern Club. Wow. That's remarkable. Did, and you know what? Just looking at that picture, it's just the eeriness of this empty, historic uh, building and you can see just how low the ceilings are yes you were referring to earlier it's not a very high um archway and maybe no, but it is two feet higher than the, the replica is it really mm -hmm. so we're looking at the archways might have been eight feet maybe yes i've got the actual dimensions i can i can send them on to you yeah, that, that's really interesting. I would love to talk to somebody that was, man, that's crazy. The whole cavern was approximately 50, 55, 60 feet across and uh, and about yeah. 30, 40 feet depth. That's all. It, it wasn't and that was it. And they, and they held 600 people there. Yes. That is absolutely astounding to me. That is remarkable. And this, of course, is the new cavern. Mm -hmm. Again, now it's interesting here because the area seems to have changed, but the entrance is still right up against the wall. Yes, well, they built it flat. So you, you, as you go in there, it, it just looks as if it's on the corner here on the right, but it isn't. It's all on on the flat. Yeah, and that's what threw me off. It looked like well, you know what threw me was, I'm in the other photographs. I didn't see this building to the right. That seems to be connected to the rest of these buildings. Yes. And it looked like it was just a street there at one point. I know. Yeah. So this was a long time ago, too. We're talking about the original cavern. But the, Again, this is like the Phoenix from the Ashes. This well, is that, the, that the, no, that was the new cavern, the one before. Uh, yeah, this one here, right? That's, that's the new cavern. Yeah, that's the new one. Yeah. And then we're going to see one more like that, which is right here. This is the um that's the, the new, new cavern club. Yes. This is the photograph, Debbie, that really kind of where I thought it was on a corner. I because yes, it, it looks like that. Yeah, it sure does. It kind of threw me off a bit. But people can see that there are just throngs of people. 
throngs of people heading into this club. Now, Debbie, how many people does the new club hold? Oh, gosh. Um, well, of course, they've added a live lounge, what they call the live lounge as well. So mm-hmm. I, I should imagine it would be up to a thousand or more. Okay. And this is, again, the setup is almost identical as the original. The, 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 the three archways in, inside to replicate the original cavern, yes. And then okay. they've got this new live lounge, which is a big uh, room with a bar and a stage as well. Oh, fabulous. So there's like a, a smaller stage and then a main stage. Yes, you've, you've got the main stage of, of the orig- of the replica cavern um, to replicate the original. Yeah. And then you, you go, uh, as you go in past the bar over to, to, the, uh, to the right, then you go through to the live lounge. And, and you, I'm sure, uh, sure you've been there, of course, to the new cavern. Yes. I, I don't imagine what would keep you away from it. You, are you kidding me? That's like your history here. We're actually going tomorrow night. <laughs> are you really? Yes. You've got to do me a favor. First <laughs> of all, this is there's so much history here. I can't do this in one episode. I have to have you back. Okay. To do a second episode with me. And you got to bring your amazing husband, Nigel, with you. Okay. That we're going to do. The other thing, that when we get off the air, don't go anywhere. I'm going to talk to you for a couple minutes. Okay. Um, This is uh, just, uh, folks, that you ain't seen nothing yet. This is just the beginning. Debbie Greenberg is, she's a piece of music history. This woman is music history with legs. Okay. (laughs) I mean, you don't even know how much history she's got. The book is called Cavern Club, The Inside Story. Get this book. If you can't find it, hit me up. I will get you a copy, I promise you. But you're not getting my signed copy. Forget it. You you can get it on Amazon or the BeatlesBookstore.com or Barnes & Noble. Oh, yeah, Barnes & Noble, BeatlesBookstore.com. Debbie is prominently featured there. Debbie Greenberg is an amazing author and has, as she said, uh, she has capsulized a labor of love in a book that you can get. And she'd be happy to sell to you. So happy she came to the States to sell it. (laughs) And I missed out, damn it. (laughs) Fabulous book. So, Debbie, what's next for you? How can people get a hold of you? Well, they, they can reach me on Facebook um, or through thebeatlesbookstore.com. Fantastic. Well, I'll tell you what. You are a welcome guest here, young lady, anytime you wish. We have an Thank opening you. for you. Um, I will tell everyone next week, important programming notes. Next week, we are doing a special look at free speech in America What's happening to our constitutional rights? Where are they going and who's taking them? We will be here with Pastor Steve Kwiatkowski, who will unleash the constitutionality of free speech next week on America's podcast. What's the buzz for Debbie Greenberg, for everybody associated with the Cavern Club? I'm Mad Dog DeCipio. We'll see you next time. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye.